our time spending that we spent uh, thinking about the Lord's attributes, the theology of, of who He is, which is really what the words express. Not the emotion, but the foundation is really who the Lord is and do we worship Him in spirit and truth. I trust you were able to do that this morning. If you're a guest here, we're glad that you're here right there on the back of the seat. You can see a QR code. Just scan that. Let us know that you were here. You can ask some questions. Tell us how we can minister to you. We'd be glad to do that. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy. And if you haven't been in the Word this week, you are starving this morning. And that's not how the Lord wants you to be. And any more than you would be missing meal after meal through the week and be healthy, you won't be healthy spiritually if you're not in the Word. So let me encourage you, as I do often, that you spend some time each day in the Word. We have a number of ways you can do that. Back in the back, you can find a trifold that can take you through the Word of God in a year. Or you can go on version. I encourage you to do that as well. Many reading plans that will take you in the Word of God each day, take you through cover to cover in a year. And all that blessing that's going to be yours from reading the Word, uh, you'll be able to own. And it's important because the Lord has one will, and guess how he expresses it? He expresses it through his word. And the more that you know that, the more collectively as a church we'll know that together. So let me encourage you to be there in the word of God. First Timothy chapter 1, if you would. We're in a study now that we've just recently started, which is instructions for the church for teaching, leading, and equipping. And it's going to be a study through the first, first and second Timothy and Titus. And it'll be a blessing to you, I think, as we go through there, as a, it has been to me as I've studied, I encourage you in your understanding of many of these things. And we're going to move, we've done a number of messages laying the groundwork and introduction. If you've missed any of that, you can find that on Spotify. You can also find it on YouTube. Let me encourage you to do that. Open your Bible, turn to chapter 1 and verse 3, if you would. And we're going to read together, starting in verse 3, we'll read all the way down through verse 11. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You read, follow along in whatever Bible that you normally read and study and meditate on and memorize, and I'll give you some verse cues we can stay together. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, verse 4, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. Verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, verse 10, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's stop right there. We'll be going through this passage as is our normal habit, verse by verse, even word by word, to get the understanding of what the Lord would have us to know. And we began this new section, and Paul is going to instruct Timothy on something that's anything but new. What is it? You picked it up right away. False teachers. We've noted that many times before. The church still faces a great challenge, beloved, as we always have, and, and the same type of challenge that the church in Ephesus was facing in the first century under Timothy's leadership, and that is to sort out the true teachers from the false. And it should be apparent to us, I think, now how important this is by how many times it's visited by the New Testament authors and just the times that we've looked at it, let alone the books that we haven't even explored yet. So it's nothing new, but it's crucial and we still have to do this, and if we don't do this, then falsehood takes over. Literally, uh, all across America, you could make example after example of churches and Christian schools and seminaries that started with tremendous conviction and passion for Christ and a commitment to godliness and the Great Commission, and they have literally been taken over by the infiltration of these kinds of people. And you have to look hard now to find godliness, you have to look hard to find a biblical worldview. And the people who've been let in 
no doubt in the name of academia or diversity or ecumenicism, uh, they are there, but they're not rightly dividing the word of truth. They're not building with the right things. And they look around and everything looks great on the outside and they take credit, of course, for what went on before, but they just wreck what God wants to build. And that's everywhere. You don't have to look very hard to see that. And, and if you don't do battle with this, it takes over. As we've seen before, it shouldn't be too difficult to recognize false teachers. We spent some time with them in First and Second Corinthians we should see by their error, by their worldliness, by their materialism, by their fleshly lust, by their pride, their divisiveness, their assault on the truth, as we just read, uh, their rebellious and lawless and all of those kinds of things. But just so you can see how much it's perhaps infiltrated into your own thoughts, I would say this, generally, current conventional church wisdom says all views are equal if people are sincere, Right? That's general church wisdom today, that all views are equal as long as they're sincere, they sincerely hold them. You hear that often, don't you? Even in institutions that have clear uh, statements of faith, they will say, well, we don't typically teach that because other people hold different positions. And I've told you before, is that a surprise to anyone? That someone holds a false position, a bad position on a, a doctrine? It's the reason why we have statements of faith, that so we know exactly what we believe and teach and we can stay with it. But current conventional church wisdom just says that all views are equal. And if you're the kind of person that doesn't buy that, and you believe 2 Timothy 2.15 means there's only one meaning in a passage, which is the clear teaching from the Word of God. There is one meaning in a passage. That's, that's the job of the Bible teacher to get to that meaning. What did it mean to the original hearers in the context that it was in? Because that's what it still means today. Now, there may be multiple applications of a passage. As you read through, you may be able to make some applications, but there's one meaning. And if you believe that, and you want to sort all of that out and what's really true, then you're the one who's divisive. So it's just switched places. And if you, know, if you realize all of that, you know what that means? That means there's no such thing as false teaching. It's just somebody holds another position. Because all views are equal and none is superior. And the old-time heretic, of course, had excessive regard for his own truth. Uh, but in the modern church, it's just an excessive regard for considering all truths as valid. So the difficulty then for someone who wants to discuss heresy, because there isn't any by that definition, then that in a nutshell is progressive Christianity, which I would propose to you is not Christianity at all. And the church with its tolerance and its openness to suggestions that the Bible really couldn't mean what the plain meaning appears to be saying, or it really doesn't matter that much, that's also there too, does it really matter that much, has really made the church vulnerable. And we think we've reached a pinnacle, but really what we've done is eradicated heresy because we've just reclassified it as optional, and you're only classified as a heretic now for offenses against inclusivism. So if you want to include all those other positions, then you're the one who's offensive. So after centuries of struggle with the truth, heresies finally have been eradicated from the church, but it's not a win. It's just we've just called it something different. And just to affirm that, you know, I was chatting with Daniel before the service, and they were traveling, and they attended a church in that area just to kind of get a feel for uh, what they believe and teach. And, of course, as he was filling me in, it was this all over again. What the Bible says doesn't really matter. The clear meaning of the text doesn't make any difference because this is what we're going to do. But the whole point of the new section, I think you can see that as we look at it, is that there are false teachers and false teaching, and we have to be able to recognize them. That's the whole point of Paul's teaching Timothy and as it passes on down to the church. And remember, we saw back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, those types of men we saw are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They taught a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel, remember, and he told the church you willingly accepted it. It's, it's precisely the same now. People hear things that are wrong, but they just say, well, that's, he holds that in sincerity, so we'll just re receive that. Verse 14, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Verse 15, therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. So not easy words as they're directed to those who stray from revealed truth. There are false teachers. They teach, of obviously, what is false, and that's a serious issue. 
If you remember in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of the time, and he says some pretty severe things to them. He says this, he says, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do what the desires of your father are, and then he gives some of Satan's defining characteristics. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So he is aligning these teachers, the, these teachers of, of uh, these religious teachers of his day, with Satan himself and the lies that come from Satan they speak. So Satan then is not only a murderer, he also doesn't stand on the truth of God and his revealed nature. We see that in Jesus' statement. In fact, he's put it out of his mind because there's no truth in him. That's what it means. He doesn't stand on the truth because there's no truth in him. And in exchange for the truth, we see that Satan is also a liar. And as 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15 illustrate for us, one of the manifestations of this defining characteristic of lying is the spread of false teachers. And they're disguised, of course, and they'll come across as, uh, to the undiscerning church as, as servants of righteousness, but these are the people who besiege the church and the gospel and the clear teaching of the Word of God, and they've done this through all the history of the church. Wherever God sets the truth, Satan then endeavors to sow lies and falsehood and error. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So when they come, they look like the right thing. See, In Matthew 24, verse 11, where Jesus is teaching about his own second coming, he says, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. The closer we come to the rapture of the church, the more often we'll see it. And I was coming on that just not that long ago, that it, we used to be able to kind of sum up false teachers just in a few names, but now there are so many names, uh, you'd need several paragraphs to put them down. And so more and more, you have people who are uh, skewing the truth of God. And of course, the book of Revelation draws for us a very clear picture of the end of the church age, and it's God's final picture of what's going to happen on the earth. It's a time filled with deception, it's a time filled with lies, false teaching, false doctrine, finally summed up in the false prophet and the Antichrist himself. So the personification of all the things that have been going on all the way up till now then take their faces there at the end. False prophets, false teachers are part and parcel of the battle the church has to fight in every single age. And obviously then from our passage, it isn't only for us to have to deal with, God's people throughout all of history have to deal with false teachers. It's the reason why it's preserved for us and we can read it and understand what it says. And if we can't recognize them, and if we can't recognize false teaching, then we can't discern the truth. Conventional, again, current evangelical wisdom says that all views have equal value if people are personally attached to them, if they believe them sincerely. But that's the devil's lie. And it's the folly of believing that kind of thing that has been the destruction of churches and institutions in centuries past. And it's not popular to sort out the truth. But it's right, and it's necessary, and this is why Paul, after leaving Timothy in Ephesus, is commanded by the Lord, as we looked at in our introduction, to pin this section of the letter. And here's an interesting thing. The church of Ephesus had to be, I think, by all measures, a great church. I mean, think about it. I mean, it, it was blessed by three years of ministry of the Apostle Paul himself. That's a blessing of a kind that no church could equal. Corinth had Paul for 18 months. Ephesus had him for three years. They knew what it was to have Paul as their pastor for three years, according to, to Acts chapter 20. And yet as he drew to a conclusion that ministry, and, and he's traveling by ship back to Jerusalem, he asked before he leaves for the other elders of that area and of the church to come see him at Miletus, about 30 miles away from Ephesus. And here's what he says to them, and I think this is very important because it leads really right into our passage. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So what's that mean? Well, people will come in from the outside, certainly a believable outside influence. We certainly saw that in Corinth. And for us, you know, it's so much easier for these kinds of people to influence the church now than it ever has been just because social media and you, YouTube and all that kind of stuff just brings it right to you. You can go and stream it. 
So you can be fooled and you can continue to be fooled right there in your home. And men will arise out of the eldership that leads the church, that's what he says, even among your own selves, and they'll be false teachers, Paul says. Men on the inside can go astray. They'll undoubtedly be influential and cause lots of problems. And so Paul says, what do we do? And you can almost hear the leadership of the church there at Miletus asking that collective question. So if that's the case, what do we need to do? And so Paul answers in verse 31, and he says this. He says, therefore, be on the alert. So be aware of what's going on. What for? Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. I told you this. I taught you. I told you what to look for. Remember what I said and start looking around. And, and Paul says, just like I did among you, but I won't be here any longer. You need to look around and you need to be aware. I'm not going to be here. Eventually, I'm going to install Timothy, of course. We know that's going to happen. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build, up, build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul says, he says, um, so commit yourself to God. And as we've said over and over again, study the word carefully. You have all the tools and the helper that you need, the same tools and helper that I have. And so he turns that over to them and says, okay, what I've been doing, start doing. You're going to need this. This is very important. So Paul knew that the church at Ephesus, like any church, would be under attack from lying prophets and lying teachers. And that's exactly what happened. And as we've illustrated, it is the legacy of every church that stands strongly for the truth to have to deal with what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, hucksters of the word. Capellos, those who corrupt the Word of God. Those who come, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, dishonestly, who handle the Word of God deceitfully. And it's the subtlety of false teaching of this kind that is, as it handles the Word of God, but that it misrepresents the truth. So it's actually using the Word of God, but doing it incorrectly and making incorrect statements concerning it. Because there's no, I don't think there's any real genuine threat to the church to teach something that is clearly and blatantly and identifiably anti-Bible, anti-Christ, and anti-God. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because I don't think generally well-taught churches are going to have any problem with any of those things. I think more and more as we approach the time when Christ is going to catch the church away, we even have trouble with that. Things that are blatantly wrong from Scripture that even, and we've said this before, even a third grader in Berean could answer seems to be difficult for those who who are in, uh, in churches today to, to make a distinction. But it's the subtlety, really, and I think this is the main problem, the subtlety of the teaching, which appears to be biblical, it appears to be genuine, and that's the danger the church faces. And that's what pulls away unsuspecting hearts. And as we see, even the church at Ephesus, though it had a great history, it had a great beginning under the ministry of Paul, was never impervious to false teachers, and so he warns them as he leaves. And so Paul writes to Timothy now, Paul's come back from his first uh, imprisonment, and he's with Timothy, and they stop at Ephesus, and he leaves Timothy there, and he tells him to stop the false teachers and set things in order in that church. And he commands Timothy to keep the teaching pure and set an example for the other churches to follow. So look at our passage now. Kind of set the stage for that. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Read verse 3 and 4. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, So that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, verse 4, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, as you look at that first sentence, that's pretty informative, I think. Verse 3 says, I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. And that word urged is a word we've seen numerous times. It's from the verb parakaleo. It's a word we're familiar with, to come alongside and help. I came alongside in a very strong way, and I said something. What was it? Remain on. Aorist active infinitive, postmeno. And that infinitive, there's no uh, number or person there. So that's a continuous command. It's going to continue on. Stay there. Remain on. It's a strong way of saying, please stay. This is very important that you do this which may have perhaps indicated Timothy's desire to go somewhere else. I I think you can get that sense. As Timothy lands there and he sees the difficulty he's going to have to deal with at the church, it perhaps was attractive for him to say, well, maybe I should go um, visit Macedonia with you. Maybe I should go 
uh, back to Corinth. I would prefer even that hostile church to what I have to do here. So Paul says, listen, I'm going to come alongside and strongly urge you, please remain here. And that's our first principle as we think about uh, dealing in discernment with false teachers is, number one, it isn't easy. If they're on the outside, it's not easy. If they're coming in from the inside, it isn't easy. We've had to deal with it here. I've had to deal with it numerous times in other churches. It's a difficult thing to deal with. And as we've noted, Timothy is about 35 years old. He's been with the Apostle Paul about 20 years. He was a true replica of Paul, as it says in verse 2, my genuine son in the faith. And we saw that even at the end of his life, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, he perished much in the way that Paul had nearly perished over and over in his life by boldly confronting wickedness. He had stopped a crowd that was going to worship at a, at a temple, and they beat him to death, and he died a couple of days later. But he had boldly come and said, men don't worship false gods, worship the true God. And he'd been there all that time at that point, and yet was beaten to death by that crowd. And so Timothy was somewhat intimidated, and no doubt found it wouldn't be easy to deal with the level of false teachers. Why? Well, really three things as you think about it. Number one, not only are they deceivers, but they're empowered by, as we saw Jesus say, the great deceiver. So the great deceiver, the one who lies all the time and has no truth in him, the devil himself, empowers false teachers to speak falsely. Number two, they're very well practiced at it. And many of you who deal with this kind of thing regularly, you understand that, that the nuances are important and you've got to recognize them. And they're very good at the deception and misdirection and saying things that sound spiritual but aren't. And number three, the church generally thinks all views are equal or at the minimum, it's not that important. So you're you're dealing with an apathetic group many times in the church. Why is this super important? Why do we have to cause trouble here? Which again, has switched the tables, hasn't it? Instead of being the one who's pointing out error, and they're the ones who are divisive, it's switched around because you won't agree with that false teaching. You're the one who's divisive. So these three things really make it difficult. And so no doubt, Timothy saw how hard it was going to be. So you can imagine, too, if it was hard for Timothy, now catch this, trained by the Apostle Paul and serving in a church that Paul had pastored for three years, if it was hard for him, which, I mean, if you think about that, that's probably the pinnacle of ability and preparedness. If you're going to go to a pastoral prepared time, you're going to go into an internship, right? Timothy comes to the church, Paul pastored for three years. He's been with Paul for 20 years. I mean, that's the best preparedness you can have. How much more difficult will it be for everyone else? For all the rest of us who are not Timothy and not Paul? Difficult. And if you remember in our introduction, we pointed out that Paul had already started this process. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, we just looked at this as we were setting the stage, because part of the way that you understand a letter or a book, epistle that's written, is you have to know what's going on in the church, you have to know what's going on in the lives of the people who are writing to the church, and the difficulties that are there. So you have to kind of set that stage in context, otherwise you won't understand what the book is trying to say. But when we looked at this earlier, as we started our study in 1 Timothy 1, verse 19, Paul says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they'll be taught not to blaspheme. And we looked at that before, and we're going to get to it and look a little bit more carefully at it. But apparently, uh, Paul himself uh, reminds Timothy that when he was there, he had already had to deal with Hymenaeus and Alexander. He had to put them out. And that sort of set the process in motion for Timothy And then Paul leaves, and he says, you've seen what to do. Now you do the rest. You do the cleanup, if you will. I've done these two. That's your example, and you can move on from there. Now, let's look at the rest of the passage. Let's look at the second part of verse 3. So Paul says, Timothy, I need you to stay there. It's really, really important that you stay there and have a presence there and not leave. And then he says, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. And that instruct, it's the Greek verb perangelo, it's it's a compound word, aristactive subjunctive, it's conditional, but para is alongside and angelo is message. Uh, You're going to come alongside and give a message, but it's in a very strong uh, sense. At some point, you may get the opportunity, it really is best command. It's a military command to command someone with military uh, authority. So he says, you stay there, please, and you're going to have to command certain men, and this certain men, I think, just seems to indicate there, there weren't that many of them, perhaps just a few, but they were having a rather wide impact, and Paul wants to deal 
with, wants him to deal with them immediately, even as he immediately dealt with Hymenaeus and Alexander. Perhaps the two ringleaders, but there were still others who were involved, elders right there, el- other elders right there in, in, uh, at the church, the main church in Ephesus, or perhaps house churches that were around in that area. But there were a few of them. He wants the, uh, Timothy to deal with them. And, and it's interesting, we don't have any of their names after Hymenaeus and Alexander. And people have asked, well, why don't, why don't we get those? Well, we can say for sure that uh, Paul knew who they were, and we know that Timothy knew who they were. But there may be a few reasons why we don't. Of course, it's just speculation as you read the Word of God and you don't get some names and you don't get some information that you perhaps would have liked to have. Well, first of all, we know the Lord didn't carry Paul along to write it down here. We know that that Jesus commanded Paul to write this letter because it says that right at the beginning. But he didn't carry Paul along to pen it. And I think that's important, first of all, just to realize that that was the Lord's will to keep that hidden. And it might be, in not naming them in the public letter, others would take warning as well. We've said this before, sometimes when we, we don't, after a few are mentioned, and then there's more that are, are listed, um, maybe they were on the fringe, maybe they were sympathetic to what was going on, but that was unknown to Paul and Timothy. So the public warning then, without specific names, takes in more. People, and as it's taught, of course, to churches uh, afterwards, it takes in a bigger uh, and a broader path. Now, what does Paul tell Timothy to command? He says, stay there, please. It's very important that you command certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Command them to stop teaching anything other than the truth. This is a compound verb, and as you look at it in the Greek, it's likely this was Paul's own word that he put together. It, it's a long word. It's, it's a hetero didaskaleo. Hetero is, one, is the word that we know. It is of a different kind, another kind, and this daskaleo is teaching, another kind of teaching. And, and the idea represented is teaching of a different kind, something that conflicts with revealed truth, deviating from the truth, and, it's, and I think this is really important. It's just a really general statement with a very broad application. So it takes in then, it takes to task, does it really matter? I mean, it's just a little difference here. Or maybe it's a big difference, but they believe it sincerely. Does it matter? And so this general statement, don't teach anything uh, other than reveal truth, is present active infinitive again. So again, a continuing command that's going to continue out into the future, continue to, co- to confront this. And, and this is our second principle from early in our section on discernment. Number two, and here it is, and I think it's very, very clear from that command. Divergence in teaching from the clear meaning of Scripture is never allowed. This is very clear. The clear meaning of Scripture in its context, what it meant to the original hearer, which is still what it means now, divergence from that is not allowed. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us. Uh, later in the second letter to Timothy, Paul says, do you want to avoid shame? You remember this? This is a passage I quote to you all the time, 2 Timothy 2.15. How do you avoid shame? Study that you may show yourself approved unto God, a workman that, what? Does not need to be ashamed. What's the rest of it? Rightly dividing the word of truth. That's everybody's job. Study to show yourself approved unto God. You want to be pleasing to the Lord? Study the word. Understand what it says. Do it in its context so you can gather the correct information. Don't come to the word of God with an agenda and you'd like to back that up with something that you're going to pull out of. That's using the word and not teaching the word. You read the Word of God in its context, understand what it says, what its plain meaning is, that's still what it means. And divergence from that is not allowed. That's the general statement here with a very broad application. Command them to stop teaching other than the truth. So it's not a surprise. When you teach the Word, you only have one person that you have to please. And that requirement supersedes all other requirements. There's only one person you have to please. The person who wrote it. You know, as as I teach uh, young ministers over the years, that's the one thing I try to drill into them. Don't worry about what people are going to say to you when you get done teaching. And I'm having the tremendous privilege of my own, my third son, who has felt the call of the Lord to the ministry, to say this to him. Don't worry about what people say, because compliments may mean the opposite of what you would really like to hear. In other words, you may get done teaching, and somebody may really say, I really, really like that. That was super great. But if you question them what they liked about it, it may be the opposite of what you wanted to come across as. I really liked how you were a good orator and you had good presence and you walked around the stage. Well, I'm sorry. There's no power in any of that, beloved. 
They may like that, but that might not be what you wanted them to like. And the other side may be, that was really bad and I didn't like it. And what they didn't like about it was precisely what the Lord was pleased with, which was, you didn't deviate from the meaning of the text and you made it clear to the people with application. And so it's very, very important, I think, as you think about all of this, that you only have one person to please as you teach the Word of God, and he's very interested in you not departing from, the, from revealed truth. Very interested. Paul warned of this in 2 Corinthians 2.17, and we, we alluded to it just a second ago. But I want to remind you, th- this is what goes on all the time. You don't have to look very far to see this. For we are not like many, and it was many in Paul's time. And we know it's increasing as we come towards the rapture of the church. For we were not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So, hucksters of the word, as we say, capellos, those who corrupt the word of God. The idea of, and this is the idea, changing it like a shady salesman. Shading some parts so you can't see it and making other parts visible that aren't that important. Trying to manipulate it, make it, this is it, palatable. This is the struggle a lot of young preachers have when they, when they go to an internship. You have people who are criticizing you saying, um, you don't spend enough time walking around looking at people. You know, I, we could make a lot of arguments about whether that's effective or not, and I think you would find the argument would fall on those who don't look up that much, who were the most effective for the Lord. You know, I don't know any faithful teacher of the Word of God who spends all of his time doing this. I, do, I really don't. I mean, they pander it a little bit, and they might touch on it once in a while, but they're more interested in making sure they have great illustrations and making eye contact with everybody and, you know, using their hands and, and great video prompts. And you see how distracting this is? Listen, look, if you look at the faithful teachers of this day or even those in, in, uh, in history of the church, where did they stay? Most of them stayed right here. Some of them, even some of the most effective ones, spoke in monotone and never looked up at anybody. Because where's the power, beloved? The power is in the Word of God. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it divides soul and spirit and joint and marrow and discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. And the less you're in it, the less effective you'll be, although you might draw a really large audience who really wants to hear all the great things that make them feel so good about themselves. So this is really, really important, and it's not something that we don't have to deal with. We have to deal with this all the time. Hucksters, make it palatable, make it look better, try to manipulate it to accomplish some gain for themselves. That's that's also in the whole prosperity theology thing. Those who come, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4.2, not walking in craftiness, that is the word for subtlety, cunning, misleading, inaccurate, false wisdom, or here's the word, adulterating, that's the word for corrupting. And the root of that word is decoy, or or the bait of a trap. Trolling to catch a fish, that lure. Adulterating the word of God, we're not doing that. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Whose truth? The Lord's truth, if you're revealed in his word. Manifest the truth, you commend yourself, and and to every man's conscience. Those who dishonestly handle the Word of God, they handle it deceitfully. And, and listen, it may be just generally by a lack of preparation or laziness. It can be that too. You can mishandle the Word of God when you're asked to teach and you don't take the time to make sure you understand the passage clearly and deliver it clearly. Uh, leaving out obvious, important things. Making the passage only about one thing because that's the one thing you want to talk about and not taking in the rest of the things that were said which are part of that passage, see? This is really, really important. This happens all the time. I think you can be making connections now, leaving obvious important things out. But here in our context, it's the deliberate manipulation of the clear meaning. And Paul says to Timothy, please stay there and make sure that you command men not to do this. And the subtlety of of false teaching is of this kind. It handles the Word of God, but it misrepresents its teaching. And this is a serious issue, obviously. And the fact that they're Teaching may indicate that these are elders, just like said, they were going to arise from among you and come in from outside at, 
and more likely, though, they just consider themselves elders, they consider themselves teachers, and they're involved in teaching something besides the revealed truth. And it seems likely that this is the case from 1 Timothy 1.7. You can just look down there where Paul says they wanted to be teachers of the law. So they've got a desire to be teachers. So no doubt they're assimilating that role of pastor, they're assimilating the role of elder, and in any respect, they had prominence in the church. And so Timothy's a little daunted because he has to dislodge people who have prominence in the church. That's always difficult. They were using the Word of God, as we've talked about before, not correctly teaching the Word. This happens all the time today, beloved. People use the Word of God. They're supposed to be teaching the Word of God, but actually all they're doing is teaching what they want to teach and proof-texting things and bringing them up to make things sound like they should. But what they were teaching was obviously inconsistent with the body of revealed truth. Now let's see what, Paul, what else Paul wanted Timothy to deal with. And again, we see this word command is in play here for the second portion. Um, look at verse 4. Uh, and, and of course, that word instruct... Uh, so, paraanglo, aristactive, subjunctive, it's conditional. You, you may get the chance to do this, and when you do get the chance to do this, make sure that you do it. So, 1 Timothy 1, 4, look there. So, instruct them uh, not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So, the idea, uh, nor to pay attention, which means to turn your mind over to, to occupy yourself with and he says, command them not to teach any other doctrine nor give their minds over to fables, to endless genealogies. The idea is fanciful stories concocted and manufactured by men and, of course, as we've seen, seducing spirits because any of those kinds of things are driven by false teachers which are driven by the, 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 the liar himself. Doctrines, verse four, chapter 4, we'll call them doctrines of demons. We'll get there. Uh, late uh, in a short time. They, they were very much like the Athenians who were described in Acts chapter 17, verse 21. You remember this general description? It gives us some insight. In, in Acts 17, 21, when Paul goes to Athens, he says about them, now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. The idea then is to just inflammatory types of things, saying things that are going to cause people to have an uproar and then all kinds of questions and discussion. We're going to see this in just a minute. And we have Timothy instructed to stop this, is the whole idea of introducing new things to tantalize people. And you hear this often when you listen to false teachers. And of course, it's hard for us to specifically identify the things that they were saying because, we, again, we don't have all of that information. And so, again, I think it's important to recognize this is a very broad statement that has a lot of application. They would, of course, know uh, what Paul was talking about here. Timothy would know, obviously, what Paul was talking about and could identify some of them. Uh, they would know what stories were being told and the approach to teaching that was being used. We don't, but it doesn't matter because we have a general command that whatever it is, if it isn't part of revealed truth, it has to stop because the previous command was that you can't teach whatever you want to teach. You can't manufacture something new. You can't take it and make the passage, which is clearly teaching one thing, try to make it teach something else. And you can't approach it unprepared or with a huckster's type of attitude trying to sell it. You can't manipulate it. And, and, and we can tell it's going on when one of the symptoms of false teaching and this, um, this paying attention to myths and endless genealogies and speculation. See, we can tell it's going on. Here's the symptom which gives rise, he says, to mere speculation. Ek zetasis, transliterated, it's E-K-D-Z-A-Y, T-A-Y-S-I-S. So, chasing after more and more questions. So, what ends up happening is the false teacher says inflammatory types of things, which just generate a whole bunch of questions and discussions about false things or things that don't matter. Chasing after more and more questions. So, if the teacher is doing something and it's just creating a bunch of inflammatory types of things which just generate a whole bunch of questions and dissension inside the flock, then that's false. And Paul says to Timothy, command them to stop doing it. And again, we really don't have specifics, but I think it's enough to know that what was being taught was contrary to the truth and contrary to, and look at the last part of that verse, furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So it isn't necessary uh, for us to know all the details. But verse 7 tells us something else. Those who were doing this were desiring to be teachers of the law. So there's a little 
clue, perhaps, of what was going on. So somehow these myths, these genealogies, were connected to Old Testament law because that's what Paul is talking about when he says to Timothy they want to be teachers of the law, which perhaps leads us to believe there was a Jewish orientation in this false teaching. And chapter 4, and we'll get there, is pretty interesting. It tells us that these seducing spirits and doctrines of devils were filled with hypocrisy and lies. And part of it had to do with, uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, forbidding to marry. And if you've read this, if you read this passage, if you've read this letter before, you know that Paul says many of them are saying you shouldn't marry, and they were advocating celibacy, and they're commanding people to abstain from certain kinds of food, and, and there was a certain sort of legalism based on man's wisdom and man-made morality was going on there. Of course, it was creating all kinds of dissension in the church and lots of questions about why can't I eat this and wasn't this part of the new covenant and why, if what happened to Peter uh, was true, then why isn't it okay if I'm doing this? So there's some problems, see? And, and we would, it would be what we would call asceticism, uh, self-deprivation, and that, quote, spirituality was found in these things and, and, and secret knowledge of a deeper life and those kinds of stuff, see? And, and all this is false, the administration of God, where we get our word stewardship, listen, the administration of God is not hidden in a mystery. It's a mystery revealed. And I think that's important to remember because this, this secret knowledge and, and all that kind of stuff so popular today, special knowledge and all that, listen, this is, this is our, third, our third step in discernment as it relates to false teachers. True teaching won't include mysteries and special knowledge and endless speculation. It's not going to include that. In fact, Paul told Timothy, command them to stop doing it. But the administration of God, and this is so important with these guys who do this, is not hidden in a mystery. It's a mystery revealed. You don't have to have special knowledge to understand what the Word of God says. You read it, understand what it says in its context, and you can understand its meaning. And, and all through all of these uh, kinds of abstinences and inflammatory types of statements where you don't get to get married and you don't get to eat certain things and, and by your self-deprivation and, and, and you know, all of that indulgence in, in these fanciful things, you'll attain to the standard of some kind of divine acceptance, see? A distorted view of the Old Testament. And First Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 confirms, as we'll see, they were not to have anything to do with these things, which brings about nothing but ungodliness. Now, as we wrap up for today, because we're out of time, it's likely that these few who were doing this considered themselves elders, like I said, or, or were perhaps serving in house churches around the area, and so they were in places of influence. And as we reviewed, Paul has so clearly predicted in his farewell to the Ephesian church leaders, he said, even your own number, uh, men will arise and distort the truth. And the fact that they presumed to be teachers of the law, verse 7, uh, likely referring, as we said, to some personal slant on Old Testament uh, law, coupled with the fact that, as we pointed out at other times, uh, that the teaching in 1 Timothy, and this is important, as you think about the focus of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, they're really addressed to the specific responsibility of elders. That's not an accident, because Paul and Timothy are dealing with false teachers who have put themselves in a position of the teacher, of the elder. And so, as we go through and begin to see some of these, we'll see the distinctions of those who serve as elder, their specific responsibilities, and more importantly, their qualifications, and the discipline that needs to come sometimes to them, and their replacement if needed. We're going to see all those things listed for us. That's not there by accident. Timothy's having to deal with people who placed themselves on a pedestal, or perhaps were teachers in a house church, and now are teaching falsely, and he's going to have to He's going to have to remove them, perhaps, if they won't listen to admonition. And so then Paul gives them a list of qualifications for those who are truly supposed to serve as elder. And that's, that's helpful, isn't it? Because then the church gets to read this public letter, and they'll see, okay, well, this guy is teaching, but his kids are all out of, uh, out of order. They won't, their kids won't obey. He can't, he can't spend time in the pulpit. Or he loves money, right? Or, or any number of things. He doesn't have a good testimony in the community. And so you begin to see these kinds of things. And then they goes on to leaders as deacons. Their kids don't follow, the kids don't come up under them, won't obey them first time. And what's the problem? Well, you can't serve. See, so all these things are not there by accident. They're there on purpose to make it clear who's actually supposed to teach the church. It's not just random, whoever wants to, see. And the fact that 
that Hymenaeus and Alexander had to be put out of the church by Paul, listen, rather than the other elders of the church, is very telling to the temperament and what's going on in the church body at that point. Paul had to come and do it when those who were there should have been able to do it. So, these teachers are not from the outside like in Corinth, nor were they uh, individual church members, which would have been bad enough. Rather, they were from among the various leaders, perhaps in the house church or imagined leaders, and so it's no wonder Paul has to urge Timothy to stay. <laughs> what a mess. And, and their method of teaching false doctrine was to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. And these errant elders, they weren't Judaizers like those in Galatia who, who taught salvation by obedience to the law. It just appears instead they just treated that law, that's the Old Testament law, as this big grocery store where they could just pick and choose whatever they wanted and just begin to bring it in and say, hey, you know, this is secret knowledge and you need to know this and, and um, this, is why, this is what you need to know. And, and they thought they discovered something deeper in the scriptures and they wanted to go beyond the simple exegesis of Paul. It's always that. It's way too simple, right? That, that's the criticism. Many, you're just staying right with the Word of God. That's just so way too simple. You don't provide enough entertainment. You're not providing enough uh, things for us to absorb. They want to move past that simple exegesis of Paul and give the people and you know events in the Bible allegorical meanings and simple stories that reveal fantastic truths. You've seen all of this, right? And there are books in Christian libraries that are exactly like this. I've, I've made fun of this before, but the Daniel diet. You're kidding me, right? They got the opposite meaning. Daniel was healthy because it was a miracle. Not because just water and vegetables were better than what he had. And yet, miss the complete understanding of that passage, now you have a book on the Daniel diet, which is supposed to be really good for you. And you're using the passage to verify. So this is not, it's not something out of the blue I'm just kind of pulling out. I mean, you don't have to look very far. You know, and always it's this. It's, it's this, which is so frustrating. You know, well, what you believe is good. You know, it's, it's a good beginning point, but there's more. You know, that those of us who have paid the price of meditation and study, we can reveal this to you because it's a mystery and we want to make sure you understand it, see? So we still have this peddling, this hucksterism and craftiness and adulterating going on today, along with speculating, you know, we can't possibly know, this is so great with progressives, we can't possibly know the mind of the eternal God and what he actually meant by this passage. How could we possibly understand that? Which takes away the plain meaning of the word of God. You can't possibly understand anything the Lord wanted you to know, the admonitions and all that kind of thing, because now it's, you can't understand the mind of an infinite God. I mean, couldn't, we don't know exactly what he meant by all of this. And there are a lot of other examples, especially, and this is always my favorite, with the number 666. And, and I'm old enough to have read a ton of books about this, okay? And um, which, of course, spells out the name of every world bad guy from Roman times to the present. If you've read any of these, you know how absurd that is. And, of course, all the different codes of the Bible, this is really important too, right? Books that come along every few years that supposedly predict all the major events of the world because you count up all the letters and you have this repeating pattern and this points to such and such and this is this pointed to the World War I and this is points to World War II. You know, you know I'm not telling you any fables. You've seen all this. And the problem is that these teachings and their systems, as opposed to the pandering and the hucksterism and the craftiness and the adulterating the Word of God like, like Steve McVeigh and, and Furtick and, and prosperity gospel teachers and universalists and progressives and others, these guys and their mysteries, this is important, that's why Paul tells Timothy, command them to stop. While not denying the gospel outright, they take the emphasis off of it and replace it with constant questions and new things and new revealed mysteries. So it's always one new thing after another new thing after another. You didn't know this book actually meant this. See? And so Paul just tells Timothy as we end, stop. Tell them to stop. Command them to stop. That should never be happening in the church. So I think that's a good starting point for us, beloved. I think we get the idea where we're headed as Paul just dives right in. He's, Jesus commanded him to write back to Timothy to give him instruction and, of course, to the larger church instruction on what's important and what isn't. And that helps us, I think. It helps us form up uh, and be more discerning as we think about what's being taught, as we hear things, of course, and, and like the Bereans of old, even when I teach you things, you should go to the Word of God and make sure they're true because I'm a man. And so it's very important that we 
Study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. All right? And so that's where we're headed. I come back next week. We'll, be, uh, we'll move on in chapter, uh, verse 5 and 6 and 7 as we dig deeper into the book. And Lord, we thank you today for just a great time to be together. We thank you for the fun it is in fellowship to be in your word. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints, which is very sweet. And the joy we get just from others' presence and that we desire the same things and we have the same worldview and we really want to see your son come. And in the meantime, we want to be faithful to serving him. Lord, these are, these are great um, common bonds, but their greatest common bond is that we've been saved from our sin. In repentant faith, you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son. That's our greatest bond. And even in the differences we hold of uh, philosophies of how to live and those kinds of things, which are great areas the Bible perhaps uh, gives us just basic instruction on, we still have a bridge that's much greater that allows us to love one another as you've commanded over and over again. A new command you gave us that we love uh, each other. And Lord, I pray that that will be the case and that as we go out, the gospel is preeminent. Not stories, not future events, not not things that we think about and want to make sure everybody misses, but the gospel. That individuals apart from Christ are separate and sinful, caught in sin and under a curse. And it's not hard to figure out whether you're sinful or not. And we ought to be able to point that out, recognizing that we all, we all used to be in that position. The gospel is the bad news and then the good news that God in his great mercy and love sent his son to be our substitution and take our place. And Father, I pray that as that is part of our purpose, to love you, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, and to go and take the gospel, help us to do just those two things with emphasis, knowing that we have to work and provide for the needs of our family and, and do the kinds of things that, that take up our time. The Lord uh, knows that we need those things, but help us to seek your kingdom first, Lord and all those things you'll add to us. Father, as we go out then, help us to be about those things as we're here. Help us to be about the teaching of the Word uh, to develop godliness and faithfulness and, and uh, a good testimony. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for his sake and all God's people said, Amen.